This is Unbreakable with Jay Glaser, a mental health podcast helping you out of the gray and into the blue. Now, here's Jay Glaser. Welcome to Unbreakable, a mental health podcast with Jay Glazer. I am Jay Glazer. And before we get into today's guest, who I'm so excited to talk to, if you're like many people, you may be surprised to learn that one in five adults in this country experienced mental illness last year. Yet, far too many fail to receive the support they need. Carolyn Behavioral Health is doing something about it. They understand that behavioral health is a key part of whole health, delivering compassionate care that treats physical, mental, emotional, and social needs in tandem. Carolyn Behavioral Health, raising the quality of life through empathy and action. I had a really cool guest on today because, and his career spanned so many different things. I think if you had said 20 years ago, hey, it's going to take him over here to wrestling, you'd probably say, huh, how, how is that possible? My dude, Freddie Prince Jr., how are you, my man? I'm very well. How are you? Good, good. Now, people are going, wait, why are we talking about Freddie Prince Jr. and wrestling? But you have a new podcast out called Wrestling with Freddie, right? Yeah, and, that's uh, correct. Okay, so uh, before I kind of jump into how you got it, man, I went to WrestleMania 1. <laughs> That's uh, amazing. Dude, so it was, it was uh, Madison Square Garden. It was Hulk Hogan and Mr. T versus Rowdy Piper and Paul Orndorff, and Muhammad That's Ali right. was the referee. How fucking cool That's is that? Right. right? That's right, man. Yeah, yeah. Ali and my dad were actually friends back in the 70s, and Ali used to spar with him and whip his ass all the time. <laughs> <laughs> really? Oh my god! Yeah, man. My dad. Do you have, did a do you have footage of that? Oh yeah, man. We. My dad uh, did a mean impression of him, and Johnny Carson asked my dad to host the show. He's to this day he's the youngest person to ever host the Tonight Show. Wow. And my dad had George Foreman on as a guest, and they reenacted Zaire. And my dad was Ali, and Foreman was Foreman, and Foreman let my dad knock him out. We actually oh have God, a towel really? with all these blood on it that says June, either June 1st or June 21st, 1975, Ali's blood. My dad got beat up so much, he met my godfather, who was Bob Wall, who just passed away. Bob was the guy that Bruce sought out when Bruce Lee came to America. So Bob introduced him to Gene LaBelle and Chuck Norris yeah, and all yeah. Pat Johnson and all these like legends, right? And uh, my dad heard he was the guy that trained like all the Hollywood guys to be tough guys like Steve McQueen and James Garner. And so my dad said, you got to teach me how to fight. And my godfather taught him the left hook and or a check hook, really. Right. And they were in Ali's house and they were fooling around. And my dad caught Ali with like this baby hook. Right. But the couch was behind Ali. So it made Ali trip and fall <laughs> and his nose got bloody. And my dad ran to his bathroom, grabbed a towel, wiped the blood off, jumped in his 75 Stingray and hauled ass to his house. While he's driving home, Ali's calling the house, talking to my mom, saying, I'm going to kill that boy. You tell that boy I'm going to kill him when he gets home. My dad had the towel framed like a war medal on crushed purple velvet with oh a mahogany frame and a little brass plaque that says Ali's blood. I think it's June 21st. 1975 my mom still has it to this day she says i can have it when she's dead that's her, <laughs> that's her exact quote that's unbelievable man yeah dude incredible that is wild i love that my I, dad I charmed love... a lot of people that took care of me when i was a young kid so that's I was really very cool, lucky. man. Yeah. really cool and look I'm, I'm gonna hit your your podcast here in a little while but you, you talk about your dad obviously your dad right had he took his own life when you were just a, a little kid yeah how 10 did months you, old. a how did it affect you and you know, you uh, you talk obviously glowingly here, like you have this relationship with your dad. How did you have a relationship, you know, with your dad as you were growing up? Like, how did it all affect you? 
Well, to start your question, it was it was horrible. How I dealt with it, I don't in the beginning I didn't. It was something that that was constant pressure and and this crushing crushing weight. How I have the relationship with him I have now as strange as that sounds to say. Yeah. When you're a kid and you lose a, a parent at a young age, and anyone will relate to this, your knowledge of them is based on stealing memories of others. That's it. Like you're just stealing. You're looking for anything. You're asking more questions than most kids. It makes you grow up a little bit faster. It probably stunts your growth in other ways. But you ask a lot of questions. You get a lot of adult stories. I mean, you got to understand, I was talking to guys like Richard Pryor, Paul Mooney, you know, all these wow. like legends to get stories about my dad because Richard discovered my father He and they had that huge falling out because Pam Greer fell in love with my dad instead of Richard and Richard where well, they had the same manager and he's like, you got to pick and the manager picked my dad and Richard was pissed off. And, you know, when my dad died, he was still pissed at him. So it, it was, wow. you know, it was a crazy time back then, but it definitely you know, it, it shaped me into the man I am, but it definitely didn't help me in any, that's, you know, that's a horrible thing for any kid to have to, to go through. And when they're famous, it just makes it more, you have to just deal with it a lot sooner. So you have to grow up a little bit quicker. What, when you, when you talk to Richard Pryor, was he like, I don't want to talk about him. Or is he like, I'll show this kid some compassion. He looked at me and he said, boy, your father was a motherfucker, <laughs> but he was a funny motherfucker. And I loved him. And it made me cry. Like I broke down in yeah. tears. I was probably like 20, 21, 22, probably about the same age as my dad when he died. Wow. Um, and he, he broke it down for me. Paul Mooney, I met when I was 12 and he just talked to me like I was a 40 year old man. Like he didn't pull any punches. He used any language he felt like using. And I just had to sit there and take it. It was me and Chris Titus and Titus introduced me to him. And I used to hang out in the clubs when I was like 12 years old because my dad opened the improv. So Bud would just right. let me hang out with all these like celebrities doing cocaine in the bathroom and, and all these people talking trash and talking the best smack I've ever heard on stage. And I would sit there with a spiral notebook and write their jokes down and then write how loud the audience laughed. And I had like 14 or 15 mead notebooks filled in like four years because I would just spend all my time there. But all those guys helped me learn who my dad was in a more honest and realistic way than my family who would just go, Oh, he was lovely. He was wonderful. Right, You'd right, be... right. But no faults, no flaws. And those men were able to tell me the flaws, which helps you get a more three-dimensional picture of him. You said it helped you grow up a lot, obviously a lot faster, but there's two ways you can go. You can grow up and you can be bitter and angry about it. You can grow up and say, I'm going to be more well-rounded. Is that a decision you made or like, did you have to kind of practice that or did it just come naturally? It's definitely practice. I mean, I, I've said this before, but I credit it through martial arts. Bruce mm -hmm. Lee said martial arts is the physical expression of what we love and hate most about ourselves, but lack the vocabulary to communicate. And so when I was young, my godfather took the same approach with me, and he was very disciplined and very strict and uh, made me work really, really hard. But that was the main thing that helped me through all that, especially through puberty, and then once puberty was done and the, and like my testosterone was in check, like my body was used to becoming a young man, then it got much easier to deal with. And I was ready for the next set of challenges that would come, which was when I came to Hollywood. And then all of a sudden had to deal with constant like public questions about him in my early twenties. Right. And I was just grateful for the experience that I had from my godfather to prepare me that best I could. Cause it wasn't always easy. Wow. 
of all those comedians who sat in there, who was the funniest motherfucker that got the best, best laugh? I mean, I watched Richard Pryor in a wheelchair break the comedy store what? with full-on <laughs> MS, go up there, and the whole crowd was completely tense because you never want to see your heroes suck. You don't want right. to see Joe Namath as a Ram. Like, that's not... That's not the the vision that you have, right? You want to see him in his prime. You want to see him, you know, killing it. And so the crowd was really nervous. They almost didn't want to see him perform. His assistant had to put the microphone in a little stand, and he's shaking, and he starts off, and his voice is real weak. And he says, I, I, can I cuss on this or no? Fuck yeah. Okay, okay. It was Richard Pryor. So. <laughs> yeah, you're talking to me too, shit. <laughs> okay, all right. So he says, uh, I was at a multiple sclerosis function with Annette Funicello. And his voice is shaky like that. And the crowd's like, oh, no. Like, this is, we can't watch our hero. Like, we can't watch him up here and suffer. And then he gets this little twinkle in his eye. And he goes, and she sucked my dick. And he did five minutes on what a blowjob from Annette Funicello was like. And I won't do it justice, so I'm not going to recreate the joke for you. It's, that's unfair to him. He's not here to beat my ass for it. But the crowd, we were, we were all hook, line, and sinker. Like, he brought us in with weakness and then just killed us with strength. And then after the joke was over, he just told the one joke, and then his helper came up and he said, I guess that's all I can do now. And they rolled him up, and everybody stood up and cheered longer than his set lasted. Wow. I'll never forget. I'll never forget that. He literally broke the room because he had us in such a vulnerable place right. and he knew it. The son of a bitch knew it. And then he killed everybody. It was so, such a genius. He's the that's best incredible. ever. Everyone agrees to that. Incredible. That's incredible. What, why'd you decide to get in the showbiz? <laughs> um, my, my grandfather was not a fan of my dad's and uh, he had cancer when I was 16 years old. And was on hospice care, and he he asked me to come in, or my grandmother said, your your grandpa wants to talk to you. And I went into his bedroom, and we knew he didn't have much longer, and we had all kind of like made our peace. And he grabbed my hand. He looked like Popeye the Sailor Man. This guy had giant tattoos on of anchors on his forearms. He was in the Navy. He had three hairs on his head. Uh, was great with his hands. Smoked a pipe. Like he was just a cool dude. And he grabbed my hand, and he still had so much friggin' strength in it. And he said, Freddie did you clean your room today? I'm 16 years old. I'm like, yeah. He goes, I'm so proud of you. And at 16, I didn't know. I'm like, all right. Like, I didn't know he was saying like for who you are right. and for who I think you're going to be. Right. And then in the same breath, he says, you know, your father really fucked things up and it's up to you to fix it. Later, he was dead. Whoa. Dead. And I'm literally was just like, oh, God, thanks for that backpack. Right? Oh, my God. Pressure going on being a loser <laughs> sophomore in high school. Like, now I get to deal with this shit, too. So as soon as I graduated or the last day of school, I didn't even stay to put on the gown and cap or any of that stuff. I got in my car. L.A. was closer than New York. Drove to L.A. and got started. Wow, that's a hey. That is a lot of weight, man. Oh my god. Yeah, it sucked, but you know, it was it, it was my life, so it was but, what it was. But there's two ways you can go. That can either cave you because the weight, or you yeah. can say, no, I'm going to step up now. I'm stronger. How did you do that? How did it become you the, the ladder for you? That's incredible. You know, these moments happen to us more often than I think we we like to admit. The sort of breakable moments. I just yeah. think as each one passes, we're a little bit stronger and and better prepared. But it's an involuntary response for me based on the way I was raised and the disciplines that Bob Wolf 
preached to me nonstop. I mean, I know this quote by heart, but I hated hearing it every time he said it. He would say, Freddie, you're in control of two things, your actions and your reactions to the actions of others. And anyone who tells you different is full of shit. And he said that to me every single day, multiple to every time I went to complain to him. There was no sympathy. There was no empathy. There was just, here is the solution to your problems. And if you can't accept it, it's not going to change. And so at an early age, I practiced that pretty well. Like even in my 20s, I was pretty good at it. By the time I was in my 30s, I was a master of it. And now I just try to teach it to my kids. That's, that's <laughs> incredible. But that's what saved me. Otherwise, you know, I would have ended up like anybody else in this business who isn't prepared for fame and the pressures that come with that. And there's so many friggin' stories out there. And no matter how many of them we know, we keep falling into those traps. So it has to be based on how you're raised and the type of programming you have. Yeah, for people, anybody out there, show business about who can withstand getting rejected more than everybody else. Yeah, and it's a multi-million dollar business, yeah. so the stakes are always so high for these people. You know, it's it's a it's a lot of pressure, and you have to be able to to look at it from the outside and then make your moves. Because if you just sort of ju you know, I'm a sweet kid from the Midwest, and I'm jumping into it. You are dead. You yeah. are dead before your feet hit the street. Like you have to go in there prepared and. And you have to, you can't just be the prettiest person in your school. You can't just be the buffest guy on the swim team. Like you have to be mentally tough to, to survive out here or it just chews you up. Yeah, no doubt. No. And, and that's the thing. Like, like for even look, I'm a different career, obviously with sports broadcast, but close enough 11 though. years, that shit, 11 years, I was making 9,400 bucks a year living in New York city. Just that's not rejected. living, brother. That oh, wasn't no, was living. Terrible. That was surviving. That survived. Deciding which bill was not going to get paid that month. But it was just, it's the early days. I'm like, shit, I just have to outlast everybody. I've got to be the last motherfucker standing and try and find a, a full-time job every week, all those weeks, over and over and over. Luckily for me, I ran into my first week, on first day on the job. I ran into another guy in the giant locker room who nobody, nobody talked to for years. He was a goofy guy with bad teeth and a speech impediment. Oh, God. He was, he was draft to replace Lawrence Taylor, and Lawrence is still on the team. So no one really talked to him. And that dude was Michael Strahan. And, and yeah, people don't man. realize, like, the first four years of his career, man, he struggled a lot. Year five, he, he blew it up. But he felt bad for me because how much I was struggling. And I didn't have enough money to take myself from New York City to Giant Stadium every day. So he would drive me back into New York every single day. Come on, for, man. For seven years. So I owe Strahan like 28 grand in Lincoln Tunnel Fair. You know, uh, I've heard so many people speak about this man the way you speak about him. Yeah. And I only know him a little bit. Like when he was out here in L.A. in the beginning, he asked me to teach him to surf. And then it never oh, worked shit. out. Yeah, because yeah. we moved to Hermosa. That, that must have yes, been when yeah. it was. That must have been yeah. when it was. Yeah. And it, it never worked out because I was working and then he was working. But I remember everybody, I would tell that story and people were like, dude, he's the nicest guy. He'll legit go. And I was like, I think we might. And we almost did like two or three different times. We just couldn't make our schedules fit. But I've always heard people just hold that guy in the highest regard. And I had a great experience with him. Uh, you know, and I, it was great for the two of us because I got to really learn football from a different perspective because yeah. his greatness was his preparation. So he'd sit there and again, he was my ride everywhere. And he would look at film over and over and over and over. And he'd like, look, look, look over here. Look at John Runyon's foot in this plane. I'm like, what the fuck are John you at? Runyon, dude. Yeah. I'm like, what are you looking at? I've got a date coming up here. You're killing me because you've got to drive me to the date. But he would really show me about these tiny little things. My question to you is kind of who was your, who was that person for you when you came out here and was able to, you were able to lean on 
and help you in the early days sure. kind of scrounge up some victories? Uh, Peter Falk was very instrumental. Wow, Columbo. Um, yeah, man. That's cool. I, I made an independent film with him. And for whatever reason, I think it was because of my father. He took a real shine to me and, and put an arm around me. And it was like being in film school. And he would talk to me about the old Cassavetti's days and how it was a brotherhood back then. And it wasn't a competition between that. And I was just like, God damn, it's not like that now. And so he just really helped me focus on the art, the work. He talked about the difference between skill and talent um, and just really showed me a different way to prepare, a different way to to look inside myself because I wasn't able to apply life experience before Peter. Hmm. I was just able to fake it and and create and create stuff and I was young and green at it but I could do it to a to a you know at least an above average level and then he helped me be so much more deliberate in my choices and help my planning and pre- preparation so much more and really focusing on like two scenes and then looking at how every other scene you do in the movie affects those two scenes and the reason he picked two was so that you would just get two different perspectives of it and then start applying that philosophy to everything. He was like a, having a, an acting coach for two and a half, three months out there and then was kind enough to stay in touch with me after the movie and still, you know, communicate. It, he would say he was proud of me when he saw me booking jobs. He go, I didn't see the movie, but I'm, I'm glad you got it. You know, what I mean? it was like <laughs> that kind of thing. But he wasn't the demo. <laughs> So he was very instrumental. Uh, Brian Denny, he was another guy only on set, though. I, we didn't have maintain a relationship after the movie. But during the filming, he was he really showed me what it was to be like a leading man and when to fight for you, what you believe in, even if the director thinks something is they want something different. He's like, this is on you. This movie's not on him. It's on you. So if you believe in a, in a choice, that's the choice you do regardless of what he says. And my brain was just so not wired for that. Cause like I said, I grew up in martial arts. Like right. what your professor or director tells you, you do, you execute it because right. something's wrong. And Brian's philosophy was like, what you did wasn't wrong. It was just different than what he wanted, but what he wanted isn't important because it's not his face on the poster. Right. And I was just like, wow. Oh yeah. I never even thought about that. And I started looking back at other jobs that I had done mentally, not watching them, but mentally and remembering all these moments where I didn't fight. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. I got it now. And so from that moment, I really changed as an actor. What you said earlier also, Peter Falk showed you the difference between skill and talent. Sum that up for me. Sum that lesson up for us. Sure. Talent's what brings you to Los Angeles. Skills what's get you, skill is what gets you work for 25 years. Hmm. Talent is having an ability to be a storyteller and communicate, right? The old saying is storytellers cut no wood. A skill is using that talent, not all at the same time, knowing when to hold it back, knowing when to go for it, different being deliberate in the choices. When you break down a scene, what's the obstacle? What's your goal? And what are the ways you're going to work around that obstacle? That's how every scene is developed and crafted and every actor approaches it in their own way, but to that effect. And so skill and talent is you know, everyone's talented, but until you have a master who teaches you how to sharpen that blade, it's just a bat. You know what I mean? And yeah. you can still do damage with a bat, but if you sharpen it, forget about it, man. Like that's now you have a weapon and you can compete at a higher level. So man, I love that. Yeah, that was that was probably the, the best way for me to describe it, but it wasn't the way he described it. I just don't have the vocabulary he had. Hey, you also I want to get here because obviously I've spent my life in martial arts as well. Had a couple of fights early on in the early days and before Fox made me stop, which 
I don't understand why. I'm clearly not on TV for my looks. <laughs> yeah, um, but they don't want you coming on with black guys and no on your head, man. Get out of here. My first day at Fox, 2004, the day before I won the Naga Worlds in uh, submission fighting. Get out and, of here. Yeah, and I, but I ended up getting really fucked up in the process. My very first day of the NFL owners meeting, 2004, and I come in and my eyes shut and my foot is fucked up. My rib is broken. And the head of Fox was like, what the fuck happened to you? And car David crash, Hill. man. And I car was just like, crash. yeah, my eyes shut. I'm going, hey, I just won the world submission fighting championship. She's like, I don't know what the fuck that is, but you'll never fucking do it again. That's why you lie, bro. Make sure it's exactly right. Yeah. I got hey, hit by a bus. You got a hey, well, I kept doing it. And man, I became everybody's favorite sparring partner for a little while. He said I couldn't fight, but they didn't say I couldn't continue to spar and train and all that. And obviously yeah. then I, I learned how to start coaching and coached a ton of guys over these years who was those early days you were talking about, right? And with your crews, trainer Bruce Lee and, and, and Judo Gene LaBelle and all that, who kind of stands out? Cause I trained with Dan and Santo just for a weekend. Sure. It was unbelievable, right? Who were those early legends stands out for you? Dennis Alexio was really good to me when I was a kid. He right. was a former ISKA heavyweight kickboxing yep. champion, beat the hell out of Bronco Sikatik in Hawaii. Weird finish. Cause Bronco claimed he didn't know leg kicks were allowed, so they started the fight over, <laughs> and Dennis beat his ass again. Rick Rufus was really cool to me yeah. when I was a kid. Brian Hurry, who was his best friend, who competed wow. at the national level, is still one of my closest friends to this wow. day. Big, big-ass Brian. He's a Mil- another Milwaukee boy, 6'5", 260. He's in his 50s now, and it still looks like a stone killer. Like right. He's just a monster. Um, Pat Johnson, Chuck yeah. Norris was, taught me how to throw the wheel kick. But he was, you know, a working actor, so he wasn't right. like my full time coach where Pat really was. Uh Gokor for a little bit. Oh wow. Um, which was Pat's student. Yep. But I fell in love with jujitsu. Yep. And they introduced me to a man named Jean Jacques Machado. Sure. And I thought I was a hot shit wrestler at four, fourteen, fifteen when I met him. <laughs> and in less than ten well, he had one hand. So I'm like, <laughs> I'd gone with guys that were older than me before and done well. And I'm like, this guy's not going to have anything. And I didn't know that he had just beat the hell out of Chuck and Bob. And they gave, they, they gave Jean Jacques and all his brothers, their first real estate space. It was in wall street village. That was Bob walls building. And so they were there rent free. That's how good they were. And in less than 10 seconds, he had me in a rest in a fireman's carry and stood up and spins me around on the second floor and goes, which window, little Freddy, which window? <laughs> and I'm like, Chris Tucker in rush hour, like, which one of y'all just kicked me, right? <laughs> and so he set me down and he started teaching me how comfortable he was on his back and why he was comfortable there. And that was my introduction to jujitsu. This was like 1992, 93. Oh, wow. And then... uh you know, as I started working in this business, my training slacked. And then as I took time off, my training increased. I met the Gracies after that, trained with them for a while, and then found my way back to Jean Jacques a few years ago. And have just been with him ever since. I love training with the man. Um, he's always been good to my family. He's taught me more about fatherhood than jujitsu, you know, so it's yeah. it's something I try to enforce on my kids as well. My son takes to it more than my daughter. But, you know, we're in L.A., so they get access to the best. Like, his boxing coach was, was Wayne McCullough. <laughs> he was seven. Yeah, you know right, what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. like, when your kids have access to that, it's just like it feels crazy not to not to use it. So so we do as a family. You know, Sarah trained taekwondo, got all the way to a brown belt before uh, she became the busiest woman in Hollywood and worked 17 hours a day on Buffy back in the day. But, yeah, man, I still love it to this day. I still train. It keeps me sane. 
Yeah. It keeps me sharp. It keeps me vulnerable, which I think is important. That's exactly right. And has made me a better man. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, my training partners end up being, you know, Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell. And Jesus man, Christ. After, after we, you know, be in the cage, beating the hell out of each other, that's where we get really vulnerable and start opening up about, you know, our shitty relationships and whatever's going on between our ears. And people come past, especially Randy and I, we'd cry our eyes out. And people walk past the cage and not really get it. They'd be like, man, these guys are crying. They really beat the hell out of each other. <laughs> like, when, not knowing we're just opened up to each other. When you spar with someone and you're trusting them enough to give yeah. them opportunities to practice what you've been discussing, and they in turn are giving you opportunities for you to execute, like there has to be a next level of trust there. And that's why they say like blood, sweat, and tears is the ultimate glue, yeah. right? Because my godfather used to say blood, sweat, and tears mm-hmm. is the ultimate glue. It makes men stick. And it does, man. Like, that's why they were all brothers. That's why they all wanted to beat the crap out of Steven Seagal in the 90s. And right. that whole group of them were yeah. like, screw you. We want you to die. <laughs> like, you know, because they were brothers. They had cut each other. They had bled with enough, with right. one another. They had cried in each other's arms, you know. Same kind of thing, man. Yeah. It's a different experience. People that haven't experienced it won't get it. It'll just sound like Yoda BS. Right, right. But it's not. Once you have it once, it's it's why people talk about it like a religion. because it really humbles you and it opens you up, man. But it gives you this type of team. Again, for me, like one of my pillars of getting through my grade depression, anxiety is to have a team. And there's no more, you know, primal team, if you will, but loving team. And these guys, and people, you're right. They don't understand. Like, well, you could all beat the shit at each other, but then really love each other even more than the rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> more exactly. than your other friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you don't get angry at each other. I'm like, no, I love them more for that. Yeah. Yeah. But that's yeah. we all need some sort of fight team, even if you don't literally fight. That's why I call it a fight team where you know that people will walk this walk with you to a different level. Not even 15 feet to my right are my wrestling mats over there. And even if it's not like with John Jocks, my buddy's an ex-Marine, Tyler Smith. He fought for a little bit. He's got a black belt in jiu-jitsu. Like, he'll come over and we'll just get on the mats yeah. and go. And I'm just, I don't even ask what's going on. But I, I'm like, something happened today. <laughs> something happened, yep. <laughs> and we need to roll. So come on over and let's go. You know, so you just know at a certain point, like, yeah, okay, my bro needs me. Let's do Let's do our thing. Katora just got out of the hospital from a widowmaker heart attack in our gym. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. He had it in, in the gym, unbreakable, they own on Sunset Strip, and then walked to the Cedar Sinai, and he come, he gets a stent put in, and he comes back three weeks later into the gym, and he goes in and he gets all stuff on. I said, what are you doing? He said, let's go. I said, dude, what are we doing here? He's like, let's go. I said, yeah, it better be a, a photo widow, shoot. You just had a widowmaker heart attack, full, <laughs> block, full on widowmaker heart attack. And he just said this, I would do it for you. And I was like, fuck me. <laughs> right? But that's the brotherhood, you right? That's a hook you can't get out of your mouth. <laughs> I gotta do it, man. You could be Jaws and you're hooked. And that's it. That's it. We went in there and gotcha. beat the shit of each other for 15 minutes and took his gloves off, threw him on the ground. He said, hey, fuck those doctors and walked out of the cage. Yeah. That's, that's that a- different brotherhood, man, right? Fuck those doctors. I, look, I know it's not responsible for someone like me to say it but sometimes you know you sometimes you know you know what your heart needs you know what your yeah. body needs i know people are like you'll never run again and my That's man they ran, said. They yes. ran the la marathon the right. next year and we're like screw that i'll show you and that was his point. better I mean, shape than me they by the time i'd gotten to to critical care of the hospital post-op i was like basically busting through to go see him the doctor told me 10 times hey your your, your friend's days of fighting those days are over i'm like hey let's not fucking say that here yeah. Let's not take away his hope. So that was his version of, hey, fuck these doctors. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's exactly what he's doing. And then, by the way, 
he continued to coach for the next three hours after our little 15 minutes. So yeah, that, but that's what that guy's a unicorn though at the same time. You know what I mean? That fucker's different. Yeah. No doubt. Hey, you and your wife are different. (laughs) When you talk about her martial arts, but you know, Hollywood couples, you normally look at him like, Oh man, this, this is a disaster. Right. And you and, and your beautiful wife, who, like you said, has been working uh, for a long, long time. Yeah, man. Why, why do you and, and Sarah Michelle Geller work so much? What is it that you guys set out that, you know, the rest of, I guess, Hollywood fucked up and this hasn't sunk into you guys? I, look, I don't know a, a simple answer. I, I will say this. You know, if you look at the national divorce rate in our whole country, it's over 50%. You know what I mean? In Hollywood, it's probably more like 90, but 50 is not a good number. You know what I mean? So I think a lot of people get married maybe too young, you know, they don't know themselves a hundred percent yet. And as you discover who you are in a relationship, if you make a big change, you may no longer be the person that, that, that your spouse married, you know what I mean? And I think that breaks a lot of people up. I think it's also a tradition that's not for everyone. And some people feel pressured to be a part of it. But as far as what makes it work for us, Sarah and I were friends first. She knew what kind of man I was. I knew what kind of woman she was. And then when we started dating, there was no honeymoon period because our friendship was that. Hmm. So it was trust was easier to come by. I already knew her faults, right? She already knew my faults. She knew, like I told her, I was like, look, I'm going to play video games till I'm 60. Like, I don't, I don't care. If you think that sucks, that's too bad for you. We won't go out. I promise. And so she was like, yeah, cool. She's like, I like reality TV. Don't talk shit about it. I'm like, right on, do your thing. So we don't shit all over each other, which is what I think is priority one. We still make one another laugh, which is priority two. And I still think she's hot and she still thinks I'm, yeah. you know, moderately decent looking. So <laughs> <laughs> all all that aside, I, you know, have a skill they don't, you know, she can't cook. I can. So she, she can't get rid of me unless she wants her food cost to go she up. I'd marry you for that. <laughs> <laughs> you ain't the first guy to tell me that either. <laughs> what are, what are kind of some of the pitfalls of being a Hollywood couple that let's say the rest of America doesn't really have to deal with? People wanting to fuck you 24 hours a day. Okay. That tends to be a problem. You look at <laughs> the reason why most of these relationships break up is because somebody's screwing somebody else. Okay. You know what I mean? So I think there's a lot more opportunity <laughs> for fame. I mean, I, I, maybe I'm not supposed to say this, but like it, that's the way it is. Like people see famous people and they just look at them differently. And there's a lot more opportunity for those people to cheat. I, it's more often men than women. At least that's, what is released in the media. So that's, I'll go with that. I don't know if women are out there as horny as, as men are or not, but you know, that goes to maybe you shouldn't have got married in the first place because right. you don't hundred percent know yourself. And if you don't know yourself, I'm telling you, you're going to change. Even when you do like, I'm not the same guy I was 10 years sure. ago, not even close. And compared to when I was 20, I was one of the dumbest sons of bitches on earth at 21 years old. I'm 47 now and just figured out, wow, pretty stupid. I got to learn some more shit. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? But yeah. I thought I had it in my thirties. I was like, got it. We're good. Don't need any more advice. And then hit like 35 and was like talking to my godfather every other day. Like, what am I doing with my life? Was, is this a mistake? Should I not have retired? He said, why did I join the WWE? Was that stupid? He's like, no, that was your dream. You loved it. You actually got to like help some of those guys and girls. Like, yeah, all right. So, you know, I'm still working it out today. Wow, man, that definitely hits for me. 
It definitely hits home for me. It does. Yeah. Hey, we'll, humble, we'll humble each other as, as the hey, podcast goes. I just got engaged. I'm 53. Congrats. Would you yeah. wait it? Good. I, well, I had I had a I had a couple bad ones beforehand, but I think in the past two I would sabotage and push everybody away. I didn't feel worthy. Men, now, men do that a lot, men, yeah. especially men that struggle for success. That's mm-hmm. a, like a very big Sigmund Freud thing: is mm-hmm. men who who become hyper successful but struggled for that success, right? Often have self worth issues, yeah, absolutely, and it and it bleeds into sexual relationships and 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 loving relationships, things like that. So that's normal, dude. That's yeah. just normal shit. And this girl, her name's Rosie Tennyson. She, uh, she and her, her sister Renee Tennyson, they were the Doubleman twins back in the day. Get and out they, of town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they kind of been in the business. What if yeah. one of them's like, "Hey, I, I'm busy tonight. <laughs> I don't want to hurt Jay's feelings. Will you take him to the <laughs> beach?" And it's hard to tell when they're on either side of you because you can't like they talk exactly the same, they sound exactly the same, they look exactly the same. Renee parts her hair in the middle. Rosie, my girl, parts her hair on the side. Thank so God for, for riffs, that. It's bad. Yes. But it's bad, and like, I'll kind of go in, you know, grab the wrong hand or go in for the wrong ass cheek by accident. So the wrong one, that's it, nice. wrong one. And nice. But, but the point they're is, they're used to it though. They're used, to it. yeah. But Rosie also, we were together for beforehand, and we split because I did push her away, and I wasn't. But that, like you're saying, you went at 35 and said, "Am I going to learn some new stuff?" At 52, I said, "I really got to go learn some new things and learn that I'm worthy of this. That you know, the great yeah. doesn't deserve to beat me." My depression and anxiety don't – they can't win. They're, they're not going to set the stage for the rest of my life. And so it's, it's a never fight. Too late. Yeah, it's a absolutely. fight, you, but you need the tool. A lot of people don't have the tools to fight it, and that's why they feel like they're losing all the time. And that's why I encourage my friends to get help. If if venting to me is not working, then, you know, find a doctor, sure. find a counselor, yeah. find somebody that can help give you the weapons you need to fight this fight because it's a legit fight, no people doubt. that suffer with it. I have, you know what I mean, and it's – questioning yourself damages your soul man it, yeah. when it damages your soul and if you do it too much it's irreparable mm-hmm. so you have you got to get it in check you, you got to get it in check man because your soul is what grants you success your right. soul is when it's as dark and and horrible and bad as it is your soul's either the drill sergeant that's like get up now you're not done or it's that nurturing you know mother type figure where it's like you're gonna be okay this is bad, but pain is temporary. Tomorrow's a new day. You know what? But it's one or the other, right? Maybe somebody out there has another version of it. But for me, that's what I it's love this. Yeah. So, yeah, you got to – that talking shit yeah. to yourself, there's enough people that will find yeah. reasons to hate you. <laughs> you don't need to join in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the roommates in my head didn't talk nicely to each other and still don't, but now I know how to handle them better. And for the first time, I felt worthy, and that's where – hey, it's never too late. That's right. It's time. never too late, man. I appreciate that's, that. Yeah, that's I, big time. Before I let you go, got two more things. One, I want to talk about your podcast. I'm going to hit you on your unbreakable moment. So we talked about uh, wrestling with Freddie. Tell yeah. us about that. You got to have me on that one time. It, look, dude, if you love wrestling, man, come yeah. on. I I grew up loving it, and I mean loving it. I only liked the bad guys because they were the ones who won on free TV, the pay-per-views. Right, right, right. Pay, right? And my, we were broke, so that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> but uh, when I walked away from the business in 07, I randomly took a job, and I mean randomly, took a job for WWE, and I worked there for two years and worked directly with talent, flew to every single or drove to every single show. I was crazy disciplined. Then I started a family, walked away. The first season of the podcast was my experience there, and now it's more my perspective on the business today and who I love. And then we go on side quests as things happen that remind me of crazy stories that happened. But it's just more storytelling at its heart, and it's called Wrestling with Freddie. Yeah. 
Great, man. That's fantastic. Like I said, I was WrestleMania one. The Rock wrote the forward to my book. My That's baby sister, so The Rock. Sick. Yep, yep, yep. Which, uh, which is great. Yo, Sarah made a movie with The Rock that both of them hate. It was not a good movie, <laughs> but he was, he took so many big swings in it. And you can really like watch the development of, of yeah. that dude's career from Scorpion King to where he is now. Same with yeah. Batista. You can really yep. see the growth in both those guys. Yeah. No, Dwayne and I did five years in ballers together where I, I played my normal dickhead self. So I was great. And just, just because how much I fuck with them, they kept going, Oh yeah, let's, let's keep it in. Let's keep it in. Let's keep it in. That's and, great and, though. My ADD, I can't remember scripts so i would just kind of do my own they thing. just let you wing it yeah but <laughs> as long as, as, long as the actors it, yeah. around you can hang yeah. then it's all good well, i got a lot of friends in that business man and you know it's batista and, and mark henry and big show and mark's uh, the best dude. yeah isn't mark's he the oh friggin my God. best man i love that dude so much man he walks oh. in unbreakable and he says hey man any chance you got a 54 shorts around here i'm like who the fuck would have a 54 shorts laying around <laughs> there's not that much cotton <laughs> in this right. town like it would have and to be goes, made of hemp he, he says, hey, 54 in the waist, sexy in the face. That's right. So that's, that's right, baby. That sums him up, man. So That's right. Um, hey, before I let you go, I ask all my guests this. Give me your unbreakable moment. One thing in life, man, that could have broken you, should have broken you, but it didn't. And as a result, you came through the other side of that tunnel stronger forever. Yeah, I mean, we touched on it earlier because I definitely, there's nothing unbreakable about me. Being, being breakable is what keeps me sharp. It's what keeps me focused. It's what keeps me disciplined, knowing that all this precious life, everything I have, it can all be gone in a, in a moment's notice if, if life doesn't turn out the way it's supposed to. So every time those moments come, I, I really try to be prepared for them. When I decided to move to Los Angeles and pursue this business, that was one of those make or break moments. I could have quit. I could have given up. I hated being told no. I hated being told I wasn't good enough. I hated having bad auditions when I knew I had a better performance somewhere inside me. I just couldn't get it out at that moment. I had moments in the car where I wanted to turn around and be like, yo, give me one more chance. But you can't do that. It's so unprofessional. So there were times where I was ready to walk away. And then, you know, it was that discipline from my godfather, you know, and those those BS quotes that he would always hit me with. I'm in control of my actions and my reactions to the actions of others. Mm -hmm. And so every no I heard, I just had to control the way that made me feel. And it was, all right, you don't think I'm good enough? You'll see. And the next time I went in, I made sure I was better. I had to hustle. I had to lie. I did everything I could to get as many auditions and as much experience as I could so that when those big dogs called me in, they couldn't talk shit. Like they would have, they wouldn't be able to deny me. And eventually I broke through, you know, I had to wait for Skeet Ulrich to be busy because <laughs> we popped at the same time. But once he booked a movie, I was like, all right, there's going to be six opportunities. I got to get one of them. See, I want to correct you here because you said you're not unbreakable. You are unbreakable because there's a lot of things that could have broken you, but you didn't stay down. That's the Yeah, in, in the permanent I, sense, 100%. I damn couldn't right. I couldn't agree more. Hey, man, I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much. Again, Wrestling with Freddie, uh, as wrestling podcast. Make sure everybody here tunes into that. Dude, can't thank you enough, man. You know, hopefully you and I can break some bread. And, man, shit, if Strahan won't get his ass back out here, you can teach me how to surf. <laughs> not a problem man we live pretty close to each other so no doubt, man. To you and to all your listeners it's a fight every day so put your hands up love it freddie prince jr thank you my dude yeah man my pleasure